From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Equal sports opportunities for women was mandated 50 years ago by Title IX legislation. Today, champion runner Laura Fleshman explains why getting access to a sports world built by men, for men and boys, isn't working for girls and women. Her book, Good for a Girl, is a feminist critique of the sports world and a memoir about her own running career. Also, Taffy Brodesser, actor, creator, writer, and showrunner of the series Fleischman is in Trouble. Brodesser Ackner adapted the show from her best-selling novel of the same name. Fleischman is in Trouble is about divorce, middle age, and dating apps. And Justin Chang reviews the critically acclaimed film No Bears by Iranian director Jafar Panahi. Not long after the film was completed, Panahi was sentenced to six years in prison. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it. My guest, champion distance runner Lauren Fleshman, is now a coach and activist working to reform the sports world to recognize the differences in male and female bodies. She wants to stop framing female puberty as a threat to performance, which results in practices that lead girls to become anorexic and stop menstruating, disrupting the hormonal function essential to building healthy bones and a healthy body. She says a surprising number of girls who enter sports programs aren't sticking around. For those who do, physical and mental health problems occur at surprising rates, and abuse is all too common. Many girls learn to hate their bodies. As a professional runner, Fleshman says the only way to make a sustainable living is to get commercial endorsements. For years, she was under contract to Nike. She has ideas about how that kind of contract needs to be reformed, too. She's now under contract with Wazelle, a fitness apparel company for women runners, where she's a partner. Her new book, Good for a Girl, is a memoir and a critique of how the sports world treats female athletes. Lauren Fleshman, welcome to Fresh Air. In middle school, you were famous not only for winning races, but for beating the boys in school. And then one day, you lost to a boy, and you were crushed. In retrospect, you attribute that to your body changing with puberty. What changes did you experience personally as an athlete as you went through puberty? Well, I had um, the benefit, I guess, in our current system, you'd call it that, of being a late bloomer. So when I first got beat by one of my male peers in middle school in the mile, it was because he hit puberty and kind of skyrocketed his performance in the mile in a very short period of time. And I had been led to believe that I could do anything that my male peers could do um, in the girl power revolution of the 90s and very much internalized that and thought it applied to sport as well. And winning and being the fastest runner overall out of everyone in my school and middle school was part of my identity. So it was very disorienting to find out that puberty was going to create two different paths for my male peers and my female peers, and that I was on the one that I wasn't so sure I wanted to be on. You actually tried to resist puberty for a while. You write, a period was a rite of passage into womanhood, and womanhood didn't stand for anything I wanted. What did womanhood stand for compared to what you wanted? Womanhood stood for more of appealing to a male 
audience. So um, being attractive to men, um, you look through any magazine and there's very a lot of concern around what you look like, how you're seen by others. Curves are a big part of that. Breasts, hips, these differentiating female characteristics to a standard male characteristic. But those body parts were viewed as impediments to sport performance because they deviated from the male peers. And there was a lot of negative attitudes towards breasts and hips, um, body composition changes that didn't really make me feel like I would have anything to gain by having those experiences. Instead, they felt scary, like they threatened the future that I wanted in sport. You prayed for small breasts. I don't know what size your breasts are, but... (laughs) um, (laughs) Pretty small. (laughs) Okay. Um, Did you consider them an impediment? Because you write that it's really important for coaches and the people and the girls or women they coach to talk about breasts. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of breasts when you're a runner and how they affect your ability to run? And I want you to answer that personally and then more generally. When I first started noticing breasts developing, it was in middle school and 12 and a half years old is the average age at which breasts develop and they're the first sign of female puberty. Um, We often attribute menstruation as the first sign, but that comes about two years later. So really these breasts developing during middle school time on average was what I was seeing. And I could see it in my friends that movement felt different to them. They were self-conscious about the way their breasts were moving. I didn't have that going on. And so I felt... I felt this kind of trepidation and, and fear, and I saw it affect their willingness to play hide-and-seek with me after school, for example. They were less enthusiastic about tag, um, and all of the research currently shows that this is extremely common. It extends well beyond runners. Um, 73% of girls reported at least one breast-related concern related to sports in middle school age, and half of them felt that breasts affected their participation. But the way that we talk about breasts is very sexualized, or we don't talk about them. They're a little bit of a um, tough subject when they really should just be a factual, basic, lived experience of half the population. Um, And 87% of girls wanted to know more about breasts and sports bras specifically. So we know that the lack of sports bras is one of the reasons why we're losing girls in sport. And I saw it happening around me, but it wasn't happening to me until much later. So I want to ask you about menstruation and performance. Did you find that when you started getting your period that it affected your performance as a runner? I mean, did you get cramps or any other kind of symptoms from your period? When I got my period, it was later than most of my peers. It was around age 17. um, And I didn't want it. It was an impediment It felt like this added burden that my male peers didn't have to deal with. And because it wasn't something that was openly talked about in a sports environment and still isn't, 87% of girls don't talk to their coaches about their period. Um, It was felt like something I had to navigate alone and the effects that it would have on my mood or my, my body composition, bloating, all those things felt like this roller coaster that I had to navigate sports through And my male peers didn't, and I felt resentful of that, especially since it was invisible to my coaches and to the health professionals around me. It was kind of like, oh, just figure out how to deal with it. So it's understandable why so many girls don't have a a positive view of their period, and which is uh, really unfortunate because our menstrual cycle is so critical to the healthy functioning of our bodies. And we are sort of taught to view it as, 
a fertility tool. And if you're not interested in fertility and having a baby anytime soon, then it, or maybe, maybe we go so far as to recognize it as a important for bone density, but it has so many other important things to our functioning as females. And we just don't know it. We're not taught it. Um, and there's a lot of new research out right now that is helping get that information out. Um, and that's going to make a big difference if coaches were educated on that. Your periods became irregular when you were young, and that pleased you. Did you do something intentionally to make your periods irregular and get them less frequently? Or was that um, a surprising side effect for you of having, um, having developed an eating disorder? I didn't feel like I did it on purpose at first. It just wasn't something I was taught to value. And so if it happened to disappear because I was training a lot and maybe wasn't timing my nutrition well or was just not quite meeting my nutritional needs, even before I had disordered eating, um, it's super common for girls to have menstrual dysfunction long before they have any disordered eating problems. It can just because you're working really hard and then you have class and you're just, you, you can't catch up nutritionally. And the female body's menstrual cycle is this amazing kind of canary in the coal mine that becomes affected as an early sign of low energy availability. And so if we're taught to look at the loss of our period as an important signal that something's not right in our body and that we will be headed down a path of injury or compromised immune system or compromised mental health if we don't get it back, then we we will feel entirely different about a lost period. But I didn't have any of that information at the time, and a lot of girls still don't have that information. So we just don't have anything in the pros column to motivate us to maintain a healthy menstrual cycle and manage the things that come with that, the mood changes and the body weight fluctuations and all that stuff that's entirely normal, but doesn't feel valued or normal in a sports world that favors the male body norms of consistency, um, you know, of just like predictable improvement over time with training. I mean, that's just not the female bodied experience during development. You had some really bad um, stress injuries in your feet, stress-related injuries, broken bones. Do you attribute that at all to the period of poor nutrition when you had, as you describe it, disordered eating, um, and to your menstrual cycle being so irregular as a result of that. Do you think that you had like early osteoporosis or weak bones? Yeah, the period of time where I had low energy availability and was depriving myself and trying to reach a certain goal weight that was below the weight that I was, um, that is undoubtedly the reason why I experienced stress fractures and anxi higher anxiety and a lot of other negative health consequences that cost me a lot of time in my career. Um, the problem is in some sports, when you lose some weight, initially you'll get um, a short-term advantage from that. It affects the physics of your movement. And it, this doesn't happen for everyone, but it happens often enough that it creates a kind of a bad example that others will follow. But then the end of that path is always experiencing a crash of some kind. And so I was, I experienced the high for a while and then crashed and had to reevaluate the decisions I was making. Um, but there, it's a trap in girls sports because again, if you have 
an environment that criticizes um, and increased body fat that says things like, if you're fit, then when you jump, nothing should jiggle. Things like that are completely unrealistic and unhealthy standards for developing female bodies. But they worm their way into your head and they create um, a conflict with every part of your body that isn't complying. You write about some of the strategies you've witnessed or heard about that some coaches have used to deal with shaming women to correct their bodies and lose weight. What are some of those strategies? One of the most common ones is just having an ideal athlete body in mind that you expect your team to work their way towards. Um, When you consider all of the diversity in our genetics and our individuality, that's an absurd idea that everyone should mold themselves into some particular model. Um, There are public weigh-ins that happen regularly in programs or body fat tests that are consistent that consistent enough to have athletes become fixated on it. Athletes are given very small ranges of acceptable body fat for an elite athlete that are based on 28-year-old Olympian bodies and not 20-year-old adolescent bodies that are in the thick of developing. Um, There's also food policing where coaches will not allow certain types of food for their athletes. They um, will make body comments on athletes in front of their teammates. Uh, Another thing they'll do is point out when someone looks fit and give a lot of personal attention to athletes that attain this body ideal and then withhold positive interaction from athletes that don't. And those are subtle ways of consistently telling athletes that in order to be invested in and cared about, they must change who they are. Um, And it's not even based on real science. That's the thing is it, it would be wrong even if it was because it creates such an unhealthy environment for athletes. But it is based on assumptions that what works for male bodies is what works for female bodies. And it's just not true. Champion runner Lauren Fleshman speaking with Terry Gross. Fleshman is a feminist activist in the sports world and a coach. Her new book is called Good for a Girl. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and Justin Chang will review the Iranian film No Bears. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Lauren Fleshman, a runner who won five NCAA championships with Stanford University and two national championships as a professional runner. Her new book is Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. I want to talk with you about uniforms. Compare what male and female runners are expected to wear. Male runners generally wear a looser fitting short um, and a jersey that covers the entire torso. Uh, It's in some events in running, especially the faster uh, sprint events, the male outfit will be a tight fitting short that also covers the torso. Female athlete uniforms are like a little bathing suit bottom that your butt cheeks hang out of or a very, very short short um, that they call uh, cheeky bottoms or something like that. And then a crop top that exposes your midriff that's also form-fitting and tight. Now, is that supposed to give you any like streamlined advantage for speed in running? Or is that purely to sexualize you? (laughs) Yeah. If there was a true sports advantage to wearing the outfit that female athletes are 
are bound by rules even to wear in sport, male athletes would do it too. Um, the best athletes in the world will want to do what the, the biggest performance advantage is. The history of female uniforms being designed as they are now started in the wake of Title IX when there was a lot of fear that sports was masculinizing girls, that it was making them gay, all of these homophobic fears around participating in activities that were traditionally viewed as men's spaces. Um, and uniforms were a way, especially in the 1984 Olympics, was the kind of first uh, big showcase of our post-Title IX bounty of female athletes. Um, there was a movement to figure out how to make people feel safer about these female athletes using their bodies in these aggressive ways. Um, and to feminize their uniforms was a very clear way to do that, to have a focus on your hair, your makeup, smiling for the camera. These are all still norms that are much more common in the female athlete space than the male athlete space. So what was it like for you as a runner in college, you know, winning NCAA championships or as a professional runner, being sexualized while you're performing as an athlete, which is all about strength, endurance, discipline, power? Um, how did those tight-fitting shorts and the kind of midriff top exposing your navel, um, how did that make you feel on the track? It creates a distraction for a lot of athletes. If you're in an insecure place at all with your body, having to put that on and know that you're going to be in a fishbowl of spectators and on television in that outfit, it's, it's like an exaggerated anxiety of bikini season or bathing suit season for everyone, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, okay, I'm going on display here. What's the situation? How will I be seen by others? Um, and that's an added layer that we're dealing with when we would love to just be focused on competing. Um, we need to lose self-consciousness in order to reach our ultimate potential. So I found it very distracting during certain times of my life when I felt that I was in conflict with my body or my body wasn't, quote, in shape yet or whatever the, the feelings I had about it at the time where it wasn't in peak form. Um, and then it would be just another obstacle that I had to get over. Let's talk about running. What do you love about running? What made you first fall in love with running? I loved running the way a lot of little children do when they would just burst into run naturally. Um, it felt like flying. It felt like freedom. And I didn't participate in running in any organized way until the middle school weekly mile in PE class. But even that wasn't an official sport. So I joined in high school. And by then, what it meant to me was belonging, um, exploring. We would take off on these runs as a group into the foothills around our town and get to see vistas of my town from a new perspective, get to explore different neighborhoods. My world got a lot bigger through the sport of running. And I also loved that when you run alongside somebody, you can have a more vulnerable, honest conversation than you can when you're sitting across the table from one another. Um, there's something that just opens you up with the movement. And so I just developed these deep bonds and also these deeper understandings of myself. It just felt like a natural fit. So after college and after winning, you know, five NCAA championships at Stanford University, you became a professional runner. And you, you say the only way to make track and field a full-time career in America is to secure an endorsement deal with a major sports brand. And for you, that brand was Nike. And like that's a really big deal. 
but you had problems with that as well. Um, I wonder how you feel about that, that to really make a living as a professional runner, you have to align yourself with a commercial brand. Because in a way, no matter how glamorous it may seem and lucrative it may seem to have to have an endorsement deal with a big company like Nike, basically, like you're being paid to be a walking, moving billboard for that company. You're there to sell their shoes. You are, and you don't really have any job security. Um, it, it's an independent contractor role, so basic employment protections and benefits are non-existent. Um, the contracts are confidential in nature, so you don't really know, like you rely on a, an agent to help you, tell you if it's fair or not. And there's uh, just a lot of norms in the industry that are feel impossible to change for individuals. You're treated like you're lucky to, to be here, so just take what you can get. Um, other sports like WNBA, women's soccer, there's a league and there are league minimums and there's a union. So there's a kind of a guarantee that at least some you'll at least make some kind of a living and that living won't be dependent on you being attractive to men. Um, like in an, in an environment where you only get money if you are deemed a worthy marketing investment as an individual by a sports company, then that means that you need to fit whatever their ideal is as a marketing asset. It's not a charity. They're not looking to support people just because they're fast or can throw far or jump high. Um, and so who you see reflected in running in a lot of individual sports that we watch in the Olympics isn't necessarily the best of the best of the best talent-wise. It's who was the best that also fit the marketing rubric that the companies value and that are that they believe will sell shoes. Well, you were once asked to pose naked in a marketing campaign. Um, what was the um, image supposed to be, and why did you decline to participate in that? My first big shot at an ad campaign with Nike, I was so excited. I, I just couldn't believe that I was going to get this chance to be used in a commercial and a poster campaign, you know, media uh, notice around it. Um, but then when I got the look and feel from the creative agency, it was a picture of Brandy Chastain, the soccer player, from an old ad where she was bent over naked with a soccer ball. And it was very provocative the way a lot of the way uh, women in media is designed to be provocative. And I, I just felt crestfallen when I saw that because I just thought, why? Like, why is the sign of making it, this making it as a professional athlete where Nike's going to use you in an ad, why is the first place they go mentally exposure um, sexualizing you? Uh, and, and, and that was present outside of that one experience. I mean, I, I put the pieces together. Being in Playboy magazine as a female athlete was kind of a sign you've made it or being on the cover of another magazine depicted in a, in a gown or, um, or lingerie or feminized in some way. Uh, and I just thought, why are we doing this? Why That has nothing to do with the excellence that got you the opportunity in the first place. And, and so I got the courage to ask them to do it differently, to not be depicted in that way. And what did you come up with instead? I came up with an ad where I was standing in my running clothes that I train in every day with my arms crossed, looking directly at the camera. And the ad was in the first person voice. So I was very much in control of how I was being viewed 
um, which added a lot of power to the ad and it made it a very successful campaign. What was the caption? Objectify me, um, which was supposed to be Nike objectifies women originally. And it was meant to kind of grab your attention and go, what the heck? And then underneath it was the fine print of we, we study and um, we study the female body so that we can make them the best running shoes. These sex-based differences in the ways we move on average need to be accommodated with footwear that is ideal for them. Because most footwear is based on a male last and they just, they say shrink it and pink it to make it a female product. Lauren Fleshman, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. It's been a pleasure. Lauren Fleshman's new book is called Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. Last year, the Iranian writer-director Jafar Panahi, a longtime critic of his country's government, was arrested and imprisoned just a few months before his new movie, No Bears, premiered at film festivals. Set in a small town, the movie stars Panahi as a fictionalized version of himself. No Bears topped the list of our film critic Justin Chang's best films of 2022. It's now arrived in theaters. Here's Justin's review. Jafar Panahi is one of the world's great filmmakers, and certainly one of the bravest. He emerged in the mid-90s and early 2000s with dramas like The Circle and Crimson Gold, which took bold aim at class and gender divisions in contemporary Iranian society. In 2010, the authorities charged him with making anti-government propaganda, forbade him to leave the country, and sentenced him to a 20-year filmmaking ban. But Panahi proved resourceful enough to defy that ban. He since shot five features, many of them in secret. Because of these restrictions, his movies have turned increasingly inward, becoming more personal, more ruminative. He often stars in them himself, playing a good-natured but embattled director, also named Jafar Panahi, and reflecting on his difficult circumstances. Those circumstances have only gotten worse since last summer, when Panahi was arrested and began serving a six-year prison sentence. And so his latest movie, No Bears, completed not long before his arrest, is likely to be his last cinematic dispatch for a while. It's a brilliant movie, an intricate and layered drama that somehow manages to be funny, angry, playful, and despairing by turns. Panahi is as incisive a social critic as ever, and here he targets the misogyny and religious fundamentalism that hold sway across Iran, issues that led to the violent unrest currently gripping the country. But Panahi has also made a powerful and deeply pessimistic statement about the nature of cinema itself. The movies may be capable of magic, but here, he reminds us, they also have their limitations. Most of No Bears unfolds in a remote Iranian village, where Panahi, or rather a fictional version of Panahi, has come to stay for several days. He's directing a movie that's being shot close by, just across the border in Turkey. But because he can't leave Iran, he has to do everything remotely. Not an easy feat, given the area's spotty Wi-Fi. One day, he spends some time exploring the village and randomly snapping pictures, a seemingly innocuous activity that will come back to haunt him. 
Sometime later, a few villagers will approach him and ask to see his photos, which they suspect contain incriminating evidence of a love affair between a young woman and a young man who isn't her fiancé. Ponahi denies having taken such a photo, and the story is ambiguous as to whether or not he really did. It doesn't even matter, since the villagers are so convinced of the couple's guilt that they try to badger Panahi into submission. A kind of tense, chilling comedy ensues, as the villagers' polite smiles and obsequious manners melt away, and reveal their underlying hostility. At the same time, the real Panahi doesn't treat the fictional Panahi as some kind of innocent. Sympathetic though he may be, the character can be somewhat clueless and entitled in his dealings with others, and he tends to get stuck in problems of his own making. One example is the movie he's directing, a kind of docufiction hybrid about a Turkish couple trying to flee local unrest using false passports. Telling that story becomes its own complicated ethical minefield, as the director, eager to depict a harrowing situation as realistically as possible, risks endangering and selling out his subjects. And so Panahi, not for the first time during his post-band phase, ponders the moral complications of his craft. Yes, photos and films can bring the truth to light, but don't they also frequently distort it? Is it possible to tell someone's story without exploiting or falsifying it? Even Steven Spielberg, a filmmaker whose circumstances are radically different from Panahi's, asked similar questions in his recent semi-autobiographical drama, The Fablemans. But with no bears, Panahi has made a much more idiosyncratic kind of self-portrait. He places himself in a hypothetical scenario and asks how he would respond. He seems to conclude that whatever his response might be, it would be crushingly inadequate. The movie's title refers to a local superstition in which the threat of bears outside the village is used to keep people from straying too far away. There are no bears, someone reassures Panahi at one point. But that doesn't mean that threats don't exist, or that violence isn't real. Even as Panahi weighs his dilemma, no bears moves inevitably toward tragedy, one that's all the more devastating when you consider what might happen to this great filmmaker and the country that he clearly loves. Panahi may well wonder what movies are good for, but no bears left me longing to see him make another. Justin Chang is the film critic at the LA Times. He reviewed Jaffer Panahi's new film, No Bears. Coming up, we hear from Taffy Brodesser Agner, creator, writer, and showrunner of the series Fleshman is in Trouble. Brodesser Agner adapted the show from her best selling novel of the same name. This is Fresh Air Weekend. The complete season of the FX series Fleischman is in Trouble is now streaming on Hulu. It's an adaptation of a novel by the same name, written by New York Times staff writer Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Taffy is known for her celebrity profiles for The Times and other publications, including GQ magazine. She sat down to talk with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Taffy Brodesser Ackner's midlife crisis happened earlier than most. At 33, with a one-year-old baby in tow, Taffy realized she wasn't experiencing the wild professional success she'd imagined for herself, like her other classmates from film school. Taffy got to work, becoming a self-described idea machine, 
writing articles out of her insatiable desire to be a storyteller. Now, more than a decade later, she's known for her celebrity profiles for GQ, ESPN The Magazine, The New York Times, and others. In her 40s, she wrote and published her first novel, Fleischman is in Trouble, which she turned into a limited FX series now streaming on Hulu. Fleischman is in Trouble centers around a 41-year-old divorced doctor named Toby Fleischman, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who post-divorce dives into the brave new world of dating on apps. But at the start of his summer of sexual freedom, Toby's ex-wife, Rachel, played by Claire Danes, disappears, leaving him with their 9- and 11-year-old kids. While Toby Fleischman balances work and single parenting, he begins hanging out with Libby and Seth, two old college friends, played by Lizzie Kaplan and Adam Brody. Here they are, inside of Toby's apartment, talking over takeout about the realities of marriage and divorce. Jesse Eisenberg's character speaks first. Divorce is like that old Othello game, you know? You start your marriage with all the discs white, right? And then there's some black discs here and there along the way. You know, you fight, but ultimately you laugh and it's fine because the board is still mostly white, right? But then something happens and the marriage falls apart and suddenly the entire board is black. Is that how you play Othello? They should probably change the name Othello, you know? Yeah, so now even the good memories are, like, tinged with darkness. You know, they're tainted, like they were rotten from the start. Not all of them. Yes, man, all of them, okay? Now you look back at all those memories, like the fight you had on the honeymoon, the way you couldn't agree on, like, a name for your child, and suddenly they're no longer innocuous fights anymore. Now they're foreshadowing. I think when we get married, we really have no way to fully understand what what forever means. Taffy broderser Ackner is the writer, showrunner, and executive producer of the limited series adaptation of Fleischman is in Trouble and a staff writer with The New York Times. She's won many awards for her profiles, including the New York Press Club Award and the Mirror Award. Taffy, welcome to Fresh Air and congratulations on the success of the series. Tanya, thank you so much. What a kind introduction. When you were around 40, you noticed that so many of your friends were getting divorced and all of them were on dating apps. Same. I saw that, too. And like you, um, one of my favorite things is to have my single friends show me their dating apps. Um, what did you find that, that then became the inspiration for you to write an entire storyline and book? I mean, I just thought that the way people are dating now is such a revolution over the way it's always been. Um, You know, you get dressed up, you go out, you try not to look too needy, you try not to look too desperate, you try to forget that, you know, your college roommate is prettier than you, and you try to figure out the right place to go where you will find somebody that is somehow waiting for you, that you've been told in romantic comedies is waiting for you. And here, this revolution came and you could be lying in bed watching TV and scrolling through potential partners, all of whom decided to show up at the same exact place, which is your phone, and it changed everything. Or I thought it changed everything. In the end, I believe in heterosexual dating, men are still very much in charge. But mostly what I saw was how... I would have liked to have spent my time back then instead of, you know, showing up in my human body with makeup on. It's rare 
for novelists to adapt their own work and have creative control over production for an actual show. Had that always been an aspiration of yours? It had never been an aspiration of mine. It wasn't even an aspiration of mine in doing this. But luckily, I think maybe perhaps when you write about middle age and one of your characters is an agent, (laughs) um, a lot of people in Hollywood were interested in this. And I thought I would sell it and continue working at the Times. But every time I spoke to producers or writers on the phone who wanted to adapt it, I would feel a sort of jealousy, but I was very focused and I had this great job. I love working at the New York Times. Um, So I continued talking to people. And then one day I spoke to Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant, who ultimately became my producing partners on this. They're well-known producers in the industry, yes. Well, legends of the industry, the most wonderful people in the world. Um, And the first thing they said to me was, well, you would have to write this yourself. It's in your voice. No one else could do it. And when you say I had total control, actually what I had were these people who are beloved and trusted and again, legends in this industry. And I believe deep down, it's they who had the control and they gave it to me. Their control consisted of saying to me, here's how you do this. And then to stand back and and let me try it. Part of the confidence that they had in you was also because this is not a straight ahead story. It's spoil alert, um, Fleshman is in trouble plays with perspective, because on the surface, it's about a 41-year-old divorced doctor. But by the end, we are aware that he was the vehicle to tell a much bigger story about the midlife crises of the women in his life, his ex-wife, Rachel, and his friend, his college friend, Libby. Why did you tell the story this way, initially through this male character of Toby? There are two reasons. One is good and one is sad. And the first reason is because I was having this crisis in the journalism I was writing. As you said, I write a lot of profiles. And it got to the point where I would spend enough time with my subjects who told me very personal things about their about their lives and about their pasts and about their marriages that ended and about their children, and about their struggles in the world, and their gripes with the world, and and sort of how it's been for them since they took off. And I would always sit and think toward the end. I would be enthralled, and then toward the end, I would start to wonder, what would the people that this person is mentioning, and and, and I worked at GQ, and then at the Times, but most of them were men, what would the women in their lives say? What would the other people in their lives say? And Fleischman comes out of this crisis of remembering that you don't really ever know a story at all. And the second reason is because I grew up with this brand of book, um, like a Portnoy's Complaint or a an American Pastoral or a Rabbit Run, like a Philip Roth, John Updike, male point of view story that 
I always loved. Those were my favorite stories. And what I found when my friends came to me and showed me their phones were that the men were having these ridiculously wonderful times on these phones and with their apps and dating. And for the women, it was relatively dismal. It was that the men their age were looking for somebody younger or thinner or with fewer kids or with no kids. I have a friend who came over to my house once to change for for a date because she had um, teenage daughters and she didn't want them to know she was going on this date. And I said, show me your phone. I'm writing this book. Show me your phone. And she showed me her phone. And it was this guy, his profile description said something to the effect of, you know, my my ex-wife was a psychopath. And if you're into playing games, please swipe away from me. But if you're a normal person, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I was like, and I said to her, what, what about this was interesting for you? And she said, you, it was the best of the crop in weeks. The best, right. I mean, it's yeah. really amazing. So when I wrote the book, it seemed like just a more fun way of entering the story to tell the story of a man. The narrator is Toby's college friend Libby, which is an interesting way to tell the story. She's a former staff writer for a men's magazine who is now a stay-at-home mom living in New Jersey. She's the character that is most like you, but I've also heard you say she's not entirely you. What are the parts that are you? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because in fiction, you know, you've made it up. So everything is you, right? Um, everything, every person on the page is some aspect of you. But Libby, especially as rendered in the show by Lizzie Kaplan, is cooler than I am. But the things about her, she worked at a men's magazine. She has a, a very devoted husband and two children. And she's just feeling lost in the world, um, I have all of those things, except that I left the men's magazine to go to the New York Times. And it just became, for the plot of the story, where we diverge is that she, during the summer, needs some time to come and figure out what she wants to do. Whereas I went off to the New York Times and had a, a pretty good time. I just couldn't figure out a way to convey how miserable I was in the suburbs and how how. M- m- the start of middle age hit me like a truck. There was no way to really do that and also, you know, have this really fun job at the New York Times where you're, you know, being sent to to Budapest to interview Antonio Banderas. <laughs> <laughs> Taffy, you're from Brooklyn. Uh, you lived in two neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Flatbush and uh, Canarsie. How would you describe them? I would describe Flappish and Canarsie as, when I was growing up, hard places to be from. Like, you know, Canarsie remains Canarsie from what I understand. Um, It's hard to get to, so I never drive through it, though sometimes I think I should. Flatbush, I somehow missed the... I was in the generation in between the romantic stickball Flatbush and the artisan cheese making Flatbush of now. They were hard places that weren't near subways, that weren't near 
Um, or I wasn't allowed to ride the subway. My mother had four daughters and was very protective of all of us. She has four daughters and probably still wishes we would take a cab. Um, and I went to a Jewish day school, so I didn't have friends in the neighborhood because I didn't know anyone who went to school. It just felt like either a, a way station or a, a place of uh, sometimes of hopelessness because of the lack of money that people had, the sort of mini ethnicity wars that were always going on in the, in the neighborhoods that I lived in. Um, yeah. It was not a fun place. You were raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. How much, how much of your family's history was part of your understanding of yourself growing up? That's such an interesting question. I felt that my family's decision to become religious when I was 12, which is what happened, we were generally unaffiliated Jews. And then when my mother, when I was 12, my mother decided to become very Orthodox and my sisters followed her. And I, I always felt like it's what made me into a journalist. The idea that for the remaining you know, six years that I was home, there were these people that I love dearly, that, I, that are still the closest people in the world to me. And I was baffled, completely baffled by their decision. I think I'm still equally as baffled, but I have a great amount of respect for who they are and how they live. And I guess the way it formed me was that it made me into someone who understood that you could hold both of those things in your hands. What made your family decide to become Orthodox Jewish? When we moved to Brooklyn from Long Island, which is where we lived briefly while my parents were married, uh, my mother was very shocked at the crassness of the culture. You know, fifth graders wearing eyeliner and short shorts. And she was always, she was always very conservative. And she felt that sending us to Jewish schools would help slow down the culture or put us into a different corner of it. And slowly, we came home from those schools saying, hey, how come everyone else keeps kosher and we don't? How come um, everyone else lights Shabbat candles and we don't? And my mother started participating more and more in that. And then one day had a revelation that this is, that it was the people who were participating in religion um, in a more complete way that were somehow avoiding the pitfalls of the culture, which to her were drug use and premarital sex and unwanted pregnancies. Um, and those were her priorities. I'm just curious, what was it like to write about divorce with two kids while being in a marriage with two kids? Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, and I was very self-conscious about it. And I was, always, I was always worried that that question would come to me and I wouldn't know how to answer it because I didn't know the answer to it. Because I did know that everyone else I knew, their first novel was a coming-of-age novel. And what did it mean about me that I was so drawn to this subject matter? And I would say in my head, like, you know, I'm a journalist. I, this is what's interesting to me right now. But when I was at a reading and somebody asked me that, and my husband was there, 
And I finally said, I don't know, we should just ask him what he thinks. And he gave the best answer I've ever heard. And it's the truest, though it didn't occur to me then. He said, she's obsessed with divorce. Her parents are divorced. Her sisters, some of them are divorced. Like everyone around her has always gotten a divorce. And that's the answer I think I like the best. The idea that once you get married, your marriage, because it's two people, becomes this sort of closed box. And you never really know if you're doing it right. But what happened was when all those people started coming to me and telling me that they were getting divorced, all I could think of was that I was at their weddings and they were happy on their wedding days, as happy as I was on mine. And what is it that I could do? I felt that my parents' divorce was a catastrophic thing in my life. And I think, I don't know, maybe it behooves us to examine these things a little more instead of pretending that these questions aren't on our minds. If these people could get divorced, it could happen to me and I would like to do some preventative work. I would like to see it coming because I think that there are so many factors. Taffy Brodesser Ackner, thank you so much for this conversation. Tanya, thank you so much for having me on. It's been wonderful. Taffy Brodesser Ackner speaking with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley. Brodesser Ackner is the creator, writer, and showrunner of the series Fleischman is in Trouble. She adapted the show from her best-selling novel of the same name. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. 